When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Henrik First and Eric Nylander about the value of art education, cultural engagements at the Swedish folk high schools. Um, so welcome to the podcast. It's great to have uh, both of you um, on to talk about this uh, fascinating and I think really important book that has got uh, a lot of lessons beyond um, the, the specific case study um, of the Swedish folk uh, high school and, and actually speaks to a whole range of different issues that um, many nations and, and many education systems are encountering around the value of our education. And maybe to kick off with, um, Henrik, I, I'll start with you. Um, I'm interested to know uh, sort of what inspired you uh, both to write a book about art education. Yeah, thank you for having us uh, on this podcast, uh, Dave. And um, as we know, many people participate in art education and some even dream of becoming professional artists. And, and through this book, we want to show how students and teachers experience, but also uh, value art education. And especially when it's often uh, considered a quite a contested educational choice. So how do the students and teachers understand and justify their engagement in arts education when it's contested as something that does not necessarily lead to a professional career? Uh, and the answers we give is uh, provide some a more plural view of uh, the value of art education. Uh, and uh, the book lies in sort of a disciplinary intersection of uh, sociology and education. So throughout the book, we address the sociology of art, education, and evaluation. And we are drawn on our previous experiences uh, working in these fields. Uh, I think the most important background for, for this book is actually a, a, a governmental report that we did together a couple of, of years uh, ago, I had just completed my PhD in sociology in, in 2017, and, and this was also before my postdoc in Uppsala and Amsterdam, and I got the opportunity to do this uh, evaluation about art education at the folk high schools, together with, uh, with Eric and uh, a folk high school teacher named uh, Sonna Lebelius. And I think we will talk a bit more about the folk high school a, a bit later during this episode, uh, but in short, it's sort of this 
educational institution between upper secondary education and the university. Um, and it, there's no really like formal entry requirements based on previous education. Uh, and we, we got to evaluate this um, uh, art education at, uh, at the Folk High School. And, uh, and the report focused then on, on music, visual arts, the creative writing education, which we also write about in, uh, in the book. And when we had this chance to do this evaluation, we really took the chance to do a very ambitious evaluation, a very uh, ambitious uh, data collection process, so we could um, get a lot of high-quality data, I think. So um, we also evaluated this then in relation to Swedish cultural policy, uh, and we noted sort of um, problems with the access and uh, recruitment patterns to uh, the Swedish folk high school and the art education. But in relation to the goals in the Swedish culture policy, it was uh, uh, quite positive in terms of it was effective in fostering um, people's knowledge and abilities uh, to produce but also consume art. And, and I think the, the real spark for, for this uh, big uh, project was when we presented this uh, report to members of the Swedish uh, parliament uh, because the organizers, without us knowing it, had decided that our talk should be titled No, uh, the Folk High School does not lead to unemployment. And I was quite surprised and taken uh, aback by that because we, yes, <laughs> it's true, uh, this uh, evaluation found that, but that was not what we focused on. It was one of the, the themes that sort of we explored throughout this e evaluation. Uh, and I then also started to think about all and the other kinds of values that wasn't highlighted, at least not in this political realm or arena. Um, but of course, when we wrote the book, we sort of realized that there sort of the organs aim to emphasize the significance of art education in the context of labor market policies. And that is to ensure its continued relevance. So that this is the kind of relevant sort of legitimation you can do in that kind of context. So labor market politics take precedence over cultural politics. Um, but however, uh, uh, we still felt that sort of the the voices of the teachers and, and students was sort of ah, silenced, so to speak, because they talked about so much more than in terms of the importance and value of participating in art education. And, and through this book, we want also to provide all these other kinds of narratives and uh, evaluations that is going on from the perspectives of teachers and, and, and students and, and thereby bring a more multifaceted view of uh, what it means to participate in uh, art education and why it's worthwhile. Yeah, I, I think you already mentioned the kind of richness of the data that you'd, you'd collected um, and that really kind of shines through in the, in the book actually and both in terms of um, those broad questions of um, almost kind of philosophical questions of what's the the kind of the value um, of, of these institutions, but actually through to the kind of uh, everyday lived experience of how 
individuals negotiate some of the contradictions, some of the tensions um, within these foci schools. I guess if, if I turn to you, Eric, one of the things that might be useful for the listeners is to introduce the Swedish folk high school, because on the one hand, um, as you read the book, you can probably say, oh, they're kind of a bit like art schools, but, um, you know, they're not in the, say, uh, the British and other European um, systems. They're kind of like um, graduate or, you know, um, university level art schools. At the same time, they've got a particular, I think, kind of national context, which, which um, is, is important and, and kind of shapes their practices. So what actually are these uh, Swedish folk high schools? Yeah, I guess the research of tertiary education tend to be centered on higher education and university degrees uh, to a large extent, at least that seems to be the case uh, in the UK. Uh, but in a Scandinavian context, folk high schools are one of these other large-scale educational institutions providing post-compulsory education uh, for the adult, edu- adult population. I, I'm not sure what the suitable equivalent would be in the English-speaking world or if there is one. Um, in part, it, it kind of resembles... Uh, North American community colleges, or it is also in part uh, derived from the same philosophy of liberal arts education traditions in the US. I don't know, in the UK, uh, you have further education, you have open university, which have some uh, similarities to the basic function of the folk high schools or their ideas. but but in Sweden, these these schools began sometime in the mid nineteenth century, a time when higher education or continuing forms of education beyond six years uh, was really reserved for a small fraction of the Swedish population, and uh, Sweden wasn't very developed. Unlike the UK, it wasn't sort of industrializing; it was a farmer's uh, society. And this was a school for the land-owning farmers and their sons from the start. But then over time, other social groups were making their way into these schools. They became very important conduits for social movements, such as the temperance movement, the free religious movement, and the labor movement, eventually. And then from the 60s onwards, they started to specialize in this uh, uh, art education or artistic forms of education. Uh, And that process followed from the whole school system having expanded, you know, the whole welfare state had developed. And then uh, there was also a new political cultural interest among the youth generations of the 60s. And then because the school is grade three and it's like, it has a very open-ended mandate to formulate their own local curricula, they were seen as more progressive, experimental, and interesting. I think something that suited the zeitgeist of the 1960s and 70s. And from there on, these art-oriented programs has really expanded, and they have taken in new art forms and kind of placed new types of cultural expression on the on the curriculum. You could say hey, that gives the sense of, I guess, a kind of, as you've mentioned, you know, liberal arts, classic sort of 
um, almost kind of free uh, kind of art school education. And, and I'm intrigued, I guess, by what the kind of lived reality is, is like. And, and maybe, uh, Henrik, I'll, I'll come to you on this. Um, what actually kind of goes on in these schools? Uh, what, one of the things that runs through uh, the book is, I mean, there are many sort of paradoxes and, and tensions that you tease out. But on the one hand is a kind of sense of, uh, I guess, kind of freedom, but also is this question of like, well, what will the curriculum be? Uh, you know, what will we do in the classroom? You know, how will kind of daily life work? So, yeah, what, what sort of um, what happens um, in these schools? Yeah, the students may either live on the premises or, or travel to school. So, so to some extent, uh, and there are boarding schools. And I think also that the public image of the folk high school is that of a, a boarding school, but it's that is also situated at the countryside. And and as Eric mentioned, there's a certain history to the and the Swedish folk high school in educating people on the countryside that didn't have access to higher education. Sort of this building has uh, remained on the countryside. So it's uh, a particular kind of environment that you associate with the, with the Swedish folk high school. Um, and, in, and in the book, we sort of try out different kind of um, classical sociological concepts in order to try to understand uh, and the sort of living at the, the Swedish uh, folk high school. I mean, in terms of being a, a boarding school, it's quite similar to Erwin Goffman's idea of a total institution because students are cut off from the rest of society. They take classes, eat and sleep at the premises and so on. Uh, but in similarity to other uh, sort of similar concepts from the 50s and, and 60s, it doesn't seem to really uh, fit uh, with uh, sort of the experience of being at at, at the at folk high school because this for example, this idea of a total institution sort of refers to the sort of involuntary confinement of uh, people like in, in prisons and so on. But here's a, a sort of a, more of a, a voluntary total institution. And here we draw on the work by Michaela Sundby that has uh, sort of developed this uh, this concept because people are there of their free will and sort of they sort of... and experience that sort of that is liberating to be sort of contained and uh, where the, the meals are, are planned and what they are supposed to do is scheduled and, and so on and so there's sort of this liberation from the control by the environment so they sort of can focus on on their cre developing their creative capacities and um, and then also this is combined with the uh, people that is going to the Fawkeye School. Not even all Fawkeye School have boarding schools. So there's sort of a mix of different students and different kinds of experiences between those that live at, um, at the boarding school and those that uh, come in from live outside and come into uh, to the, the, the Fawkeye School. Uh, and something that we also discovered when doing the interviews with uh, the students is that is uh, there is this uh, sort of romantic shimmer around uh, art education at the folk high school, and it's also used in sort of the the marketing also of um, 
the folk high schools to attract new uh, students uh, uh, where it's so that this is a total institution experience is described in very um in a very positive manner but then there were also incidents that were talked about quite a lot during the, the me too and uh, also when one reads about the folk high school and fiction one also discovers very dark uh, sides to this uh, sort of total experience of living uh, together with others, sort of isolated, so it uh, can be um, yeah, quite problematic as well. This sort of liberation to uh, true confinement, so to speak. Can I stay with you to sort of tease out a couple more things, uh, Henrik? So one of the things that you, you get, uh, and you, you sort of alluded to this already um, from, from the the work with the students, is a sense of both how they kind of narrate and describe the school, which is, is actually different for, for different uh, types of student. And then also a kind of profound sense of the kind of meaning of, of art education. And I'm interested to hear really a, a bit more about that, particularly that uh, kind of sense of, of how the students describe this, um, on the one hand, as you said, you know, total institution, um, but also this quite nice <laughs> total institution. Mm. Uh, you are thinking about uh, how the students describe the school. I mean, in terms of how yeah, things happening and so on. Yeah, exactly. That. I think yeah, you've got four sort of uh, frames, four sets of discourses they use. Yeah, I should also mention that the the book draws on this um, sociology of critique or French pragmatic uh, uh, sociology. So in this particular uh, uh, book chapter, we draw on the work by Laurent Tevenot and the sociology uh, of engagement uh, to sort of uh, tease out the sort of very private forms of yeah engagement that people have and how they give meaning and value to their sort of uh, uh, yeah being at the school or what they want to achieve by by being there, what they want to experience. Uh, and we also did, discovered that the people could have uh, several different types of orientations to sort of conform to these types of uh, engagements. Um, and here we try to use the, the metaphors of uh, art education as a, a hothouse happening home and, and hospital. Uh, and when we write about artist education as a, a hothouse, and that is also what people generally think about from outside when they're thinking about art education, and, and that is that art education is sort of a means towards a goal of having an artistic career or taking the next step in an educational trajectory. And here the, the students learn the crafts and skills that they find necessary to take these ne next steps in their career. And here also is the rotations towards the future. But art education can also be a home uh, about familiarity and getting a sense of belonging by being at folk high school. And sometimes this is described as a particular kind of folk high school experience. And perhaps the students are moving away from where they grew up to be with other like-minded individuals. And, and here, the sort of the present and the past matter. 
I want you to do with others in the moment, in the folk high school, to have this homely feeling while being at the folk high school. That is important for uh, some of the participants. But education can also be uh, like a, a happening uh, to explore something and then sort of the spontaneous nature of participating and where one does not know what will happen. Uh, and this is also part of uh, this fight and folk high school experience and part of the sort of creative atmosphere of being at a folk high school where you, to a great extent, can free, free the shoes what to do and engage in uh, due to this open curricula. Uh, and art education can, for example, be part of a, a gap here in this context. And art education can also then be sort of similar to a hospital. Some students participate in art education to recuperate. Some have had problems with their health, for example, being burnt out in their occupation. And the folk high school becomes a place to wind down, to get back to a sense of self. And here the students look back at where they have been to be able to uh, look forward. A sort of um, tension and perhaps a, a paradox in all this is... Um, to some extent, these sort of orientations can all also be traced back to this imperative of a labor market integration, like the hospital making people ready to enter the labor force again, or taking a gap here so that one is able to continue studying for, for an occupation, for example. And so that is sort of an interesting twist to all this. If that's the orientations um, towards the school coming to you Eric I guess the big question is well who are these students you know who who are um, the students who, who are going uh, both actually in terms of yeah whether they see it as uh, a kind of hot house happening home or, or hospital but also uh, in terms of their kind of roots in and I wonder if you could sort of bring together uh, a, a couple of the chapters that talk about who goes, the kind of patterns of attendance, and then crucially, how do they actually get in uh, to the art school as well? Mm, okay. Yeah, that's uh, covering a few uh, themes uh, in the book. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned before, so this long history of this particular institution in Sweden uh, being a, a farmer school from, from the start made it quite remotely located and uh, I guess if you compare it to other institutions that promote cultural knowledge and, and competence, they are quite rurally or shattered around Sweden. But the, the cultural programs tend to recruit nationwide. And um, even though um, these art programs, they only make up some, what, 25% of the full attendance of the Folk High School, they, they are... Um, they are clearly different from the other programs in the folk high schools. Um, uh, as Hendrix said, we could piggy ride quite a bit on the governmental authorities in gathering registry data, uh, which in the case of Sweden is quite developed. And there you could uh, track people based on, you know, parents' um, occupation as well as... Um, where they're coming from. And there you can see that these 
as is usually the case with art education, the, the cultural program has a more nativist recruitment profile. They're really struggling to attract students from non-Scandinavian and non-European origin. Um, and in terms of parents' educational level, it is socially skewed towards the middle classes and the upper middle classes. It's also clearly dominated by women and the higher up the age bracket you move, the rarer it is to find men partaking in art classes or music and creative writing. But this is obviously very schematic and uh, I think the starting point was Hendrik was talking about was, I mean, Hendrik and me had been doing studies on elite programs in the folk high schools before this. And then I think we were, we were kind of uh, surprised doing the commission report just how broad and how different and how plural the engagement were in the uh, in the various programs, and that not everyone wanted to become Pablo Picasso or get the Nobel Prize for the <laughs> the best uh, creative writing. Uh, so I mean, it's very schematic, but it's the usual suspects, right? The classical take on the social underpinnings of attainment is showing that there is a privileges, there is like social structures of exclusion. And is, is that reflected in, I guess, kind of roots in, and, and we might actually bring in the story of the teachers here, because obviously uh, admissions and, and, and kind of, you know, the, the teachers in general have to make uh, judgments, I guess, about um, artistic value, or, or artistic worth, as well as that, as you've said, usual suspects of you know, who thinks it's a good idea to go and study an art subject rather than going into the labor market to earn money working in, you know, a routine or manual occupation or a highly skilled technical occupation, something like that. So what what sort of, yeah, what kind of judgments allow people in? Um, what, what kind of things are the teachers sort of thinking about when they think about artistic value? Uh, yeah, so... I guess that question was for me, was it? Um, oh, yeah, sorry, Aaron, yeah. Um, no, so uh, I think as like one uh, one thing that struck me when we compare these justifications and valorization that Henrik was talking about that the students formulated was that teachers being spokesperson of the institutions and, and the organization that employed them had to play a much more uh, another language-based game on on which which sort of um, were mobilizing more publicly recognizable orders of worth in legitimizing the school form. So it's not so easy for a teacher to say that the students are there to have fun, to get laid, and to grow up, and so on. They have to mobilize more generalizable concepts of worth. That and here we sketched out more sort of public orders of worth where uh, which was a model modified after Boltanski and, and Tevenot's work where and we looked quite a bit on on the testing situation so basically like for for example like an audition or when when people go come in uh, to the school like how are they tested uh, and I guess it's like commonplace knowledge nowadays to uh, that that the type of weak classification of curriculum content that 
is happening in art school doesn't fit all students equally well and that some students are particularly students from working class backgrounds and some migrant groups have a harder time feeling at ease in these types of experimental and open-ended explorative modes of arts education if they end up there in the first place. Uh, but I, I think we wanted to do something more uh, in the chapters, both on on the, uh, the selection tests and in the ethnography on, on what happens in class. Um, and perhaps also try and highlight how artistic engagements are always underscored with uncertainties. Uh, we zoomed in on these kind of situations, which was... Um, you know, where people could do, do wrong or where people are confused and perplexed and embarrassed and feel fragile. Um, the chapter on 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 selection test, and we focus also on, on like how you uh, how how you come about choosing someone over someone else. Like what what is the format that uh, you give priority to in terms of making selections into a school. If there is more applicants than there are places, do you have a personal letter? Do you uh, stage an audition? And how do you talk about it? Uh, where obviously different conceptualization of worth has to sort of materialize, then you have to justify a choice. I mean, there's, you, you mentioned, um, things like classroom practices and, and actually there's lots more uh i could have asked you about there and yeah the orders of worth the justifications the the, the stories uh both teachers and students tell around um these um both things like entries uh but but also things like classroom practices is i think a real strength and a real kind of fascinating element of the book as is the kind of ethnographic um element but I wonder if we might kind of bring things together in a really sort of general question. That there's lots more I could have asked you uh, about, and, and I'm sort of conscious um, to, to kind of stress the listener of how much more the book uh, is kind of doing and, and how much more is going on in the book. But I wonder if I could ask you a kind of uh, provocative <laughs> question by, by way of kind of summarizing and, and concluding the book, and, and maybe... Uh, Henrik, I, I'll come to you first. The conclusion is, it asks this question, is art education worthwhile? Uh, and I think that's a, both a great question, but also it allows for reflection um, on some of the ideas and themes that are in the book and, and maybe some of the things uh, that we haven't talked about as well. So yeah, let's start with you, Henrik, and then I'll, I'll come to you next, Eric. But is art education worthwhile? What What's the um, the kind of the book's conclusion on that uh, on that big question? Well, actually, the book ends uh, with the words, while the value of art education may seem to be a mar marginal settlement on at first glance, the kind of value attributed to it speaks to the kind of society one wants to have. So today in Sweden, art and, edu uh, and art education are sort of uh, under attack. There are budget cuts and that overall relevance for art and culture is uh, questioned in, in society. Uh, so there is therefore a battle going on to define art and to what extent uh, government should uh, support uh, uh, cultural offerings. 
so to that extent, there is also a sort of a battle going on to define the kind of society that we uh, want to have uh, through uh, culture and the sort of to the extent that culture is supported and how we think about culture and, and the ways in which it's possible to legitimize culture in society also speaks about the kind of society underpinning those sort of conventions that uh, we use to support our, our arguments. But returning to the voices from our books, the, the students and the teachers, we can see that our education is also many things. So when we one discusses this on sort of this political arena, of course, there is this very reductionist understanding of art education. And you cannot really get the this full sense of uh, what it means to participate in art education and sort of the, the values that is attributed to art education and, and sort of negotiated and used throughout art education. And I, I believe that through that, uh, through the book, we were, were able to, sh to also show this kind of evaluation practices uh, going on. Uh, and we also see that the forecast school is also a very particular kind of place in, in society. It's a space within society where art can be discussed. There are not so many of those um, spaces left in society where like-minded individuals, often from various parts of the country, can meet and talk and develop their uh, artistic crafts and, and skills and also live in this sort of voluntary total institution uh, at times. Um, and also that art education can have other functions that one uh, does not necessarily think about. And this is this idea of art education as a hospital uh, or a space for those who haven't uh, found gainful employment. So it also fulfills an important, although indirect role in the Swedish welfare society. Uh, and some, of course, also continue uh, with artistic careers. Uh, and it's quite common that uh, artists in Sweden have a folk high school experience uh, when they become professional musicians, uh, uh, authors, uh, or uh, visual artists. Uh, but that, that is not necessarily the main point uh, of why you participate in, in art education. And that is what we try to, to show throughout the book. What about you, Eric? What's your take on, is art education worthwhile? I, I guess, in some ways, you know, because you've uh, co-authors, you, you, you're in a very similar uh, kind of space uh, to Henrik, but I wonder, uh, have you got any, um, I guess, kind of concluding reflections on the book to add to this uh, thorny question? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... Um... I think throughout the empirical chapters of, of the book, we sort to kind of suspend our own judgments as much as possible. Uh, but the concluding chapter, we, we felt like, uh, you know, we wanted to challenge the existing uh, educational policies uh, a bit. I mean, Henrik mentioned this very triggering event for us where we were supposed to talk under the heading uh, no folk high schools does not lead to unemployment. 
I think for us it, it meant, you know, how could we have come to the point where this is the, you know, headline that you speak under when you talk about art education? How how can the kind of learning to earning paradigm have become so 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 dominant? And what can we do to kind of uh, challenge this? Because it, it it felt like that the conceptualization of art education as a public good has had been narrowed down to something uh, which you know was a tiny little fraction of, of what we thought it would be um, and you know should it be a public good should it be conceived of as a private good I think it is a political struggle where we can uh, work for ammunition to kind of show that plurality and the broad-based uh, legitimacy that these types of school, uh, schools have in society and and defend uh, another vision for society than the one currently uh, displayed. 